0: Welcome to our continuing study on the kingdom of heaven. And this evening, the session that we find ourselves in, I've titled Kingdom Pilgrims. Now, the idea here is, is that we're going to learn from uh, the patriarchs of the Old Testament uh, and how they lived as those who were citizens of the kingdom of heaven by faith in the promises of God, but also lived here in the common kingdom on earth. And then next week we'll do the same thing, but looking particularly at the nation of Israel and what we can learn from them uh, as a nation. And then the week after that, we will look at the nation of Israel in exile and what we can learn from their life during that time period. And then we're going to move into a few weeks of applying that to some specific issues. Uh, But this evening we'll be looking primarily at Uh, the lives of Abraham and Isaac and how they uh, interacted and lived in their culture as uh, pilgrims. And so to catch us up and kind of review to help us understand this, we've been talking throughout this entire study uh, of God as the sovereign king of his creation, but we've spoken of two kingdoms. Uh, One king with two kingdoms, or another way we might say it is two covenants and one king or one lord of the covenants. So we had the Noahic covenant governing the common kingdom of earth that includes all mankind, and then we have the new covenant uh, that is governing the kingdom of heaven and God's redeemed people. And so the issue that we find in our own lives is that we're citizens of both those kingdoms, We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven living on earth amidst other humanity who are not necessarily citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but they are citizens of God's common kingdom. And we find ourselves living in and as citizens of lesser kingdoms of men. And so last week we looked at some contrasts between the kingdoms of men, the nations of earth, and the kingdom of heaven and how they differ from one another. And so this sometimes creates uh, some conflict for us or creates just some difficulty in understanding how do we navigate this being citizens of multiple kingdoms and our allegiance primarily given to Christ as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so, and, and we talk about lesser kingdoms or the kingdoms of men in this earth. And so we could think about uh, even the United States, right? It, and we call it a lesser kingdom because it doesn't encompass the whole of humanity, right? It has geographical boundaries. There are humans who live in a common kingdom but are not citizens of the United States. Uh, and the citizens of men do not endure. The common kingdom itself only endures for a time. The kingdom of heaven is everlasting, but the citizens of men within the common kingdom endure for even shorter periods of time. They rise and they fall. Uh, They do not last forever. However, Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will endure forever. Uh, And so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven living in the common kingdom governed by God uh, amidst other humanity, believers will share common cultural experiences with other humans who are not Christians. So we share some experiences with them with non-believers, but we do so as the kingdoms of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So we have a different identity, we have different ethics that we're governed by. We have different standards of behavior. And so how do we navigate those interactions? Uh, So here are a couple of comparisons that I think will help us as we begin to look at this at comparing the common kingdom. Again, one king, two kingdoms, the common kingdom to the kingdom of heaven. The common kingdom governs humanity in general, all mankind, is governed by God via the Noahic covenant in the common kingdom of the world. The kingdom of heaven, however, is restricted to a particular people, right? God's elect, his chosen people, a holy people. Uh, The common kingdom uh, includes cultural activities in which all of humanity engages, Uh, marriage and family and and various things. We're going to look at a handful of those this evening. But the kingdom of heaven includes what we might call cultural activities that only the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are involved in. And these would be acts of religious worship prescribed by God for his people. Uh, The common kingdom is concerned with the preservation of nature, right? So the Noahic covenant after the flood establishes uh, God's sovereign kingship over his creation and promises the preservation of nature until the end of time when, when nature ceases. But until such a time, things are preserved in a certain way by that covenant. The kingdom of heaven, however, promises a redemption of nature. Not necessarily all of nature, but we know that our own physical bodies will be redeemed, resurrected or transformed in that moment. And so there, there's a certain thing about our human nature that has fallen that will be redeemed Uh, in the kingdom of heaven by the promises of the new covenant and the work of Christ. And then again, the, the common kingdom itself is temporary. This earth will pass away, whereas the kingdom of heaven is everlasting and eternal. And so uh, those are some contrasts between the two. And so as we consider this, as I said, uh, there are three uh, Old Testament circumstances in which the people of God find themselves, and we are going to learn from each one of them. That is, uh, the patriarchs as pilgrims, the nation of Israel, and then the nation in exile. And so our main text, although I will jump around quite a bit again this evening, but our main text this evening, if I had to pick one, would be Hebrews chapter 11, Uh, verses 13 through 16, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. And there we read these words. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, They would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we can see here referencing when it says these all died in faith, it's referencing back to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, the patriarchs, died in faith, having seen the promises from afar, but not having received them. So they were, they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth. And it says in verse 16 that they desired a heavenly country. So even though the promise of the land of Canaan had been given to them, it seems that they understood that even that was a temporary thing and there was something more to be desired, right? It's the state that Adam would have attained to had he not sinned. And that's what we're desiring, that heavenly country. And so Christ as the second Adam, obtained that for us. And so that's what they're looking forward to and recognizing that they are pilgrims here on earth. And so uh, we find the same thing said of the New Testament church in 2 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Uh, and so addressing the church. Peter says we are pilgrims, very much like uh, the patriarchs were in their day. And so Abraham, uh, the New Testament refers to the covenant made with Abraham as a covenant of promise. The covenant that was made with him contained a number of promises. uh, And in a certain sense, we could even say that the, the call of Abraham and the promises made to him via that covenant, in a certain way, inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, in Hebrews, it talks about the new covenant being established in Christ's blood. But I think that we could reasonably say that it was inaugurated on earth with the call of Abraham, the setting aside of his family uh, as a chosen people separate from the rest of humanity. Uh, Abraham had faith in those promises. He set his desires on a heavenly country, on things that are above, and recognized uh, that he was a pilgrim in this world. And so the covenant with Abraham uh, did uh, a number of things, and there are four of them that I want to specifically look at uh, tonight that we can see uh, relate to our life as pilgrims on this earth as well. Uh, The first one is the covenant with Abraham set him and his family apart as a special people uh, for God. In Genesis chapter 17 Verse 7, God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So this is not universal. It doesn't apply to all men everywhere on the earth. It is specifically made with Abraham and his offspring. So God is setting aside a people for himself. And of course, in the New Testament, uh, we know that This people eventually includes uh, those who are not descended from Abraham according to the flesh, but those who are descended from Abraham according to faith. And so in the the letter to the church in Galatia, the Apostle Paul writes and says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And then in verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. So uh, the church... Just like Abraham and his family in the Old Testament, the church has been set aside as a special people for God, separate from, distinct from, the rest of mankind. The second thing that the covenant with Abraham did was that it assigned specific acts of worship to this chosen people that had been set aside. For one thing, in Genesis 15, God made promises to Abraham, brought him out told him to look towards the heavens and count the stars and promised him that his descendants would be numerous. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So uh, the covenant with Abraham is based on faith, right? So that the people of God now descended from Abraham are a people of faith. And then in Genesis chapter 17, uh, they're given an ordinance or an act uh, a religious act of worship that they are to take part in. Genesis 17, verse 10 This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And so they're given an ordinance of their uh, religion to participate in. And then, of course, in Genesis 21, we see uh, an example. Uh, of Abraham being distinct from those peoples that are around him, when it says in Genesis 21 33, "...then Abraham planted the tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God." That couldn't be said of the Philistines and the other Canaanite people groups that were around him. So we can see the, the role that the worship of God specifically plays in the lives of these called-out people. Uh, and of course, we know that uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul quotes Genesis 15:16, 15:6 uh, about believing being counted to us for righteousness. Uh, and so the people of God in the New Testament as well, uh, our, our relationship with him is based on faith. We have ordinances of our religion that we practice, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we call on the name of the Lord in the same way that Abraham did. So we have uh, assigned acts of worship that distinctly set us apart from other peoples on the earth. The third thing the covenant with Abraham did was it promised redemption the covenant with noah didn't promise redemption it promised the preservation of nature it promised some things about common relationships of humanity and justice whoever sheds man's blood by man will his blood be shed but it didn't promise redemption it didn't promise salvation but in genesis 15:6 when it says that abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness that's right standing before god this is him being redeemed from the fall and, and being seen as a sinner in God's eyes. Now he is seen as right in God's eyes. And, of course, in Genesis 22, 18, a passage that Paul later refers to, uh, saying that it is a, referring to Christ, God promises Abraham and says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a promise of a Savior, of a Redeemer. Uh, and Paul says that this seed is Christ. In the New Covenant, we see these same things uh, applied to the the New Testament church. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we're told, therefore, having been justified by faith, Just as Abraham was by his belief in the promises, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's our redemption. We're no longer at enmity with God in rebellion against him as uh, so many of the members of general humanity are. But we now have peace with God. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, it says much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So uh, the justified are saved from the wrath of God to come. So there's our salvation. Uh, So the the covenant with Abraham establishes those. The fourth thing that the covenant with Abraham does is it promises permanence. Uh, And so this is hinted at in the fact that it promised redemption, that it promised salvation, Uh, If we are saved, if we are redeemed and counted righteous in God's eyes, and and that we are saved from wrath, then that indicates permanence, uh, everlasting life. In Genesis 17, verse 6, God made another promise as part of the covenant to Abraham. And he promised not only that he would have a multitude of descendants, But he said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Well, when we consider the New Testament equivalent of this, when we get a picture of the final consummated kingdom of heaven at the end of the book of Revelation, it says that, in chapter 21, verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Well, what are the nations of those who are saved? At this point, there, there are no unrighteous in the kingdom. This, these are only those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ who are in the kingdom, and they are called the nation, uh, nations of those who are saved and the kings of the earth, well, we know that the redeemed are promised that they will reign with Christ in the kingdom. And so David Van Drunen, in his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, says this, he says, the nations and kings created by the covenant with Abraham are not the nations and kings that come and go in this world. But believers who constitute the eternal redemptive kingdom that will rule, rule the world to come with Christ in glorious fulfillment of the hu- original human destiny. So he's, and then he references uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, that talks about Christ. Um, fulfilling what Adam could not, attaining what Adam could not for us. So these are the things that the covenant with Abraham does and we are a part of those things because the covenant with Abraham was a covenant of promise and those things have been now established in the new covenant. So let's look at how Abraham lived as a pilgrim in light of these promises that were made to him and how we can learn from him. How do we live in this world as pilgrims who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, one thing is we are in this world, but we're separate and distinct from it. We share some common cultural activities with our neighbors, but we go about those things in a different way. So one of those things that we can note, uh, and we look at the life of Abraham if we turn to Genesis chapter 14, We'll, we'll remember in Genesis chapter 14 that there was a military conflict. Uh, there were kings who were at war with one another. And so how does Abraham conduct himself in the midst of a military conflict? Well, if we look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, then one, of the, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, And they were allies with Abram. So Abram had allies in the land Canaanites, who were not part of the chosen people of God, but he had political, military allies in the land. In verse 14, it says that he had trained men of war in his household. Now, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, that is Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so uh, he has trained men of war. He's willing to participate in an armed conflict uh, in order to rescue Lot. And then when the conflict is over and Abraham has won the battle, and he brings the, the spoils of war back, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And the king of Sodom, it says in verse 20, 21, said to Abram, "'Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself.'" So he's rescued those who were taken captive. He's brought back all the the treasure that they carried off. And so the king of Sodom is negotiating with him. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Aner, Escol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So there's a couple of things here. First of all, Abram is willing to see that the soldiers, his allies who went with him and participated in this military conflict, uh, are paid, that they get their due. So he's not opposed to those who participated in the military conflict being paid. And he refuses uh, any wealth for himself, not because it's wrong for a soldier to be paid. Obviously, it's not according to what he said in verse 24, but because he did not want this king of a Canaanite nation to take the credit for making Abraham rich. And so there's a distinction that Abraham wants to keep that he went to war to do something that was just and right, to rescue Lot, to rescue those who had been taken captive. He had allies in the land. He wanted to make sure that they were rightly rewarded for their military service, but he didn't go to war for his own personal gain or for conquest over other people. And so that's an important uh, concept there. Now we can see, uh, looking at the New Testament, how does the New Testament deal with this issue of military service and war? Well, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching and proclaiming that uh, the Messiah is here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he has people coming to him asking him questions. If that's the case, then, then what are we to do? How are we to live And so he has some tax collectors that come and ask him what they're to do. And it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 14, likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. He doesn't tell them, well, listen, now that the kingdom of heaven is here, if you believe and repent, you have to quit being a soldier. He doesn't tell them that. He just tells them, You be a soldier that doesn't abuse your power. You be a soldier who is content with his wages, who doesn't take unfair advantage of others. In Acts chapter, well, in Luke chapter 7, uh, we also see a centurion that comes to Jesus wanting him to heal uh, someone in his household. And again, Jesus doesn't tell him. He has to stop being a Roman soldier. In fact, he's impressed by the faith that the man expresses. In Luke chapter 10, We have another centurion uh, by the name of Cornelius of the Italian cohort uh, who sends some men to go fetch the apostle Peter and to come and preach to him and his household and those who are there with him uh, wanting to hear uh, the truth of the gospel. Peter shows up, he preaches to them, what it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So as Peter is preaching the, the word about Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on these Italian soldiers and, and they're saved. And And Peter in verse 47 says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, Then they asked him to stay a few days, and there's no indication here that Peter says, well, now that you're saved, now that you're followers of Christ and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you have to exit the Roman army. You can't be citizens anymore you can't be soldiers anymore. He doesn't say that to them. He doesn't tell them they have to quit. So, I think we can draw that lesson from Abraham and from what we see in the New Testament that Christians as citizens of the heaven are, of the kingdom of heaven are free uh, to participate in military service, but they have to do so in a certain way, not seeking conquest over other people, not abusing their power, seeking their own personal gain, but simply seeking justice and seeking to help those who are innocent and in need of help, uh, and not trying to enrich themselves uh, by this position of authority. The second thing we see Abraham doing with, uh, uh, with his neighbors is economics. He, he's economically engaged with those who are around him. In Genesis chapter 23, uh, we know that we see that Uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has died. He's looking for a place to bury her. And so he goes uh, and negotiates to purchase a field uh, from some of the Canaanites so that he can have a place to bury his wife. And so as he's negotiating with them, it says in Genesis 23, verse 14, And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So Abraham is engaging in economics. He's buying a field uh, from the Canaanites, paying with money that is weighed according to the currency of the merchants. So Abraham's not trying to set up his own little enclave just for the people of God and they're only going to do business with each other and not do business with uh, the world around them. No, he's doing business with his neighbors. He's buying land. Presumably he sold livestock. Uh, He was wealthy. Uh, And so believers can buy and sell and work in the world. And we see that uh, in the New Testament. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says in verses 30 and 31 that um, those who weep, this is how Christians are to behave. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world not, as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. And so this is where we see that pilgrim mindset come in. Abraham purchased a field but he didn't possess the land of Canaan, even though it had been promised to him. He purchased a field, he engaged in economics, but he had his mind set on a heavenly country. He desired that heavenly country that had been promised. Christians are able to engage in economics in the world, but we are to do so as those who are not attached to this world because we recognize that this world is passing away. In Ephesians and We see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul writing to the church says that Christians, he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. So Christians are to work, they're to labor uh, with their hands, they're to earn money so that they can eat and so that they can be generous and give to others. Uh, There are a couple more passages in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that tell us that that Christians are to work with our own hands so that we can feed our families. So Christians are to engage in economic trade, but they're to do so uh, not getting attached to the things of this world and to do so with a level of generosity that should set us apart from those around us. The third thing that we see Abraham uh, engaging in with his neighbors is what we might call uh, judicial disputes and settlements. And so if we look at Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is uh, dealing here with Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines. And uh, Abimelech had taken Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his household, and then God had reprimanded him for that. And so in chapter 20, verse 14, it says, "Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abimelech had taken Abraham's wife, which was not something he should have done. God had cursed him so that none of the women in his household could bear. But when he finds out what was wrong, he makes restitution to Abraham and Abraham accepts it. So there's a judicial agreement that's being settled here. And Abraham is willing to take that settlement for because it was the right thing to do. Even though we can see that Abraham was slightly in the wrong here, lying to Abimelech, misleading him. Sarah herself was rebuked because of this, so uh, we can see that even in the world it's possible for our non-Christian neighbors sometimes to behave better than Christians do. But it is okay uh, in these sort of civil disputes uh, to come to terms and a settlement with them. We know in Romans 13 uh, that Paul says that the civil government has been established by God and one of its purposes is to pursue justice, to punish wrongdoers and to encourage those who do right. And so Christians should expect justice in the world in the common kingdom. Uh, we're told in 1 Timothy 2.2 2, that we're to pray for the emperor and for rulers and government officials. We're to pray for a peaceful society. Uh, we're to pray for a situation in which we can live at peace with our neighbors. In Acts chapter 16, uh, it is an interesting one. We see Paul, on his missionary journeys, gets wrongly arrested and imprisoned. In Acts chapter 16, verse 35, When it was day, the magistrates sent the officer, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So we see here an instance of Paul exercising his rights as a citizen of Rome, a citizen of men. But notice how he does it as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's willing to exercise his rights, but he didn't seek retribution against these officials. He wanted them to do what was right. He wanted them to make it right personally, but he didn't insist that they be punished for what they did that was wrong. He complied with their request. They wanted him to leave, to to depart and go in peace, and he did. He went to Lydia's house, encouraged the saints that were there, and then departed. So he didn't openly rebel against the the government, but he did insist on his rights as a citizen of this uh, kingdom of men, but he did so uh, with the ethics and the mindset of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And there are several other instances throughout Acts of Paul uh, using his rights as a citizen of Rome, but he always does so with a mind for how is this furthering the work of Christ and the mission of the gospel. The fourth thing is is that uh, we see in Abraham's life uh, what we might call political involvement. We see this in both Abraham and Isaac's lives uh, in the book of Genesis. One place to look at this would be uh, Genesis chapter 26 in the life of Isaac. Isaac is dealing again with the king of the Philistines uh, and he's having some conflict with them. He's dwelling in their land, but Isaac has become fabulously wealthy. Uh, And so they become uncomfortable because he's so wealthy and has such a large household. And so uh, they begin not to treat him so well. It says in chapter 26, verse 14, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And so... I won't read the whole thing, but they come and they they have a quarrel over those wells. And so Isaac moves on. He digs some other wells and goes up to Beersheba. The Lord appears to him and promises him that he's going to be with him, reaffirms some of the promises of the covenant. And then down in verse 26, it says, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuza, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. And so he made them a feast. He makes a covenant. He enters into a covenant with non-believers, with the Canaanites. Uh, This is a political arrangement. We might note that Isaac left when he was asked to. He moved on when he was wrong, but ultimately what he wanted was to live at peace with his neighbors, and so he was willing to enter into a peaceful political covenant with these men. he didn't try and take over. They sent him away because they were afraid of how powerful and wealthy he was becoming. He didn't try and just take over their land. He left when they asked him to. Uh, he, he honored their authority, but he sought peace with them. Uh, Joseph might be another example. We've been studying the life of Joseph on Sunday mornings. He, he rises to be second in command of Egypt. He's involved politically in a kingdom of this world, but he's doing so with the integrity and the ethics we would expect as one who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can consider that same uh, attitude that Isaac has uh, in the lives of believers. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us in verse 18, uh, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That pretty well describes what Isaac did in Genesis chapter 26. In Acts chapter 8, again, like we saw the, the centurions and the soldiers who were involved with uh, Jesus, Peter, and John the Baptist, and they weren't told that they had to stop being a soldier. In Acts chapter 8, we have uh, the account of the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who, encounter, who Philip is led to encounter. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 27, So he, that is Philip, arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And Philip leads this man to the Lord. He's saved, he's baptized, and he goes on his way back to Ethiopia, to the court of the queen, a man of great authority. Philip doesn't tell him, now that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you can no longer be a political official In a kingdom of this earth. Philip doesn't tell him that. Believers are allowed to participate in politics, but they do so, again, as those who are not attached to this earth, those who uh, are striving to live at peace with our neighbors, with those who are around us. Another thing that we see, uh, the the last one that I'll point out this evening, uh, that we see in the life of the patriarchs is that, obviously, we continue Along with our neighbors in the kingdom, the common kingdom of this world, uh, we continue to participate in the mandate first given to Adam in the garden and later reiterated to Noah in the Noahic covenant to be fruitful and multiply. We participate in families, marriage and families. Uh, We see this in the lives of the patriarchs as Abraham finds a wife for his son Isaac. But notice how, again, those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven do these things in a distinct way from our neighbors. In Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham is seeking a wife for Isaac, it says in verses 3 and 4, and I will make you, he's speaking to a servant, I will make you swear by the, by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. We see Isaac doing the same thing for his son, Jacob. Well, in the New Testament, we see uh, similar circumstances. When Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's speaking of uh, widows, of a, a, a wife, uh, he says in verse, chapter 7, verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So just like Abraham sought a wife for his son Isaac, not from the daughters of the Canaanites, but from his own family, Christians participate in this marriage and in family, but we do so distinctly from those around us because we are to marry in the Lord. We're not to seek out a non-Christian spouse. But obviously in the same chapter, Paul says if you're not saved, And you're married and then you get saved, you stay married to the person that you're married to. We participate in this common institution of marriage. But we do things uh, a little different from those who are around us. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is speaking to the church. And and what does he say uh, to parents? He says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Our non-saved neighbors in the common kingdom won't do that they will raise their children differently than how we raise our children. We are to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So we participate in this common uh, cultural activity of marriage and raising children, but we do so uh, differently than our neighbors around us. The real distinction, uh, the real idea of living as pilgrims in this world Uh, is summed up well, I think, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we live in this world, but we are not of this world. So we're not to be conformed to it. We're not to act like our neighbors around us, but rather we are to be transformed, distinct from the world, and transformed into the image of Christ, who is the king uh, of the heavenly country of which we are citizens. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, uh, it tells us, Therefore, let us go forth to him that is Christ outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So just like Abraham was looking for a heavenly country, we are to live in that way as pilgrims on this earth, knowing that here we have no continuing or enduring city, but we seek the one that is to come when Christ returns and consummates the kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 11, in that passage that I read at the beginning, it says that truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. So we are to desire a heavenly country just as the patriarchs did. In Titus chapter 2, Paul instructs his assistant here on the life of the church on Crete, And he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to live uh, as pilgrims on this earth, looking forward to uh, the glorious appearing of our King. Back there in Hebrews chapter 11, again, remember it said, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Uh, The Old Testament patriarchs, pilgrims on this earth, they received the promises, but they didn't inherit them fully. They saw them from a distance. Jesus, remember, said that Abraham had seen his day and was glad, but he had seen it from a great distance. However, Now that Christ has come and inaugurated the kingdom on earth, believers who are now citizens of this heavenly kingdom stand on the threshold of the kingdom. We see it much closer than the patriarchs did. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 writes and says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on this earth, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that really is the pilgrim mindset that believers are to have. We're to set our mind and our hearts on things that are above, looking for that blessed appearing of our king. Christians are to seek to live faithfully obedient to our God in both kingdoms. Uh, which he is the king, the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer.